from the CDE Foundation. This is Lunch Bites. Hi, everyone. I'm Glennon Stratton. And I'm Karen Warner. Welcome to Lunch Bites. Here on Lunch Bites, we talk with educators about innovative practices, resources, and practical solutions to benefit our students and our greater education community. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Jacqueline Allison, the director here at the CDE Foundation of our California Teacher Residency Lab. People call you Dr. J, so welcome, Dr. J. Thank you, Karen. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you, Glennon, as well. Can you tell us about what brought you to the lab and about your work with the lab? Sure. So the California Teacher Residency Lab is a community of partners, <laughs> like uh, the school districts and universities who partner together to start a sort of like a teacher credentialing program in their district. We call it like a teacher residency. It's modeled after medical residencies in the sense that a student teacher will work alongside a mentor teacher for a year. So they're on site learning in real time how to become a teacher. And at the same time, they're completing their coursework, they're taking all their classes. And by the time the resident, that's what we call them, is done, they will be ready to teach day one. They also have a job waiting for them in that particular district. And so I really like these because the idea was to kind of address the teacher shortage here in California, especially in STEM subject areas, special education, bilingual education, and I believe that teacher residency programs are one amazing vehicle in which to do that, especially when we think about urban communities and urban schools, high poverty schools. Those are the schools that typically get hit hardest when it comes to a shortage and students are missing out on learning. You know, they might have a substitute in their classroom. Maybe they have four or five substitutes over the course of a year, and that's a whole year of learning that they never get back. Right. And you can see that you see it manifested in student test scores and achievement gaps. And so when this job became available, I just had to do it. I had to jump on it. I love teaching. I want to make sure that all kids get what they need so that they can thrive and manifest their dreams. And it just seemed like a perfect fit for me. Yeah, the lab seems like a great way to have statewide impact. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. And at the systems level, right? Because when you're thinking about this type of partnership, you are basically working in the actual credential program, right? Mm -hmm. Shifting how teacher residents are prepared. And then you're at the district level working to bring in new people. And so now you've got these teacher residents who are prepared in a very strong way. Um, They're typically people of color and they're being infused throughout all the school districts that have residency programs. And there across the state, the CTC or the California Teacher Credentialing Commission awarded 38 grants to different partners. So they span the entire state of California. So it's really exciting. It it is exciting. I'm wondering for those people who are the residents now, their experience doing this during the time of COVID, it must be a bit of an extra challenge. Yes, yes it is. I have the pleasure of also teaching in a teacher preparation program. UC Merced. And what I'm finding 
<laughs> is that the student teachers are feeling a little overwhelmed, right? Mm -hmm. But just like any cooperating teacher or the mentor teachers are also feeling overwhelmed because it's new for everyone. Mm -hmm. And often what I hear is people say that they are living at work. I mean, literally. And when you're young in the profession and you're entering it, it's hard to find the work-life balance. I mean, it's hard for anyone who's a seasoned educator to do that. And so how do we ensure that we are supporting them in a way that says, okay, when the school day's over and you've spent a little bit of time grading or whatever you need to do, stop. <laughs> stop. Go do something else. Go take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be compassionate with yourself so that you do have the energy and the strength to continue and moving forward. To be quite honest, Karen, I think that that's a message that all educators need, though. It's not just for, you know, pre-service or student teachers. Absolutely. I think just as humans, right, taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that in the past few months, you've started writing a blog, and I wondered what inspired you to start this blog? Well, I felt like we have a lot to say. You know, I've done some research on compassion fatigue in educators, and this whole notion of compassion and this idea of being willing to confront anything that you might be dealing with emotionally, physically mentally, spiritually, whatever it is, and being present and not kind of running away from those feelings so that you can take steps to move forward. I think having that skill as an educator is very important because when you're working with students, a lot of times our students are experiencing quite a bit of trauma. And so if you're going to teach them, you're going to work with them, how can you be present in that space in a way that it doesn't impair your ability to not only take care of them. And so it doesn't impair your ability to be an effective teacher. And so this particular blog, it's called Compassion Centered Education, and we'll be giving tools and tips and techniques or writings, inspirational thoughts and ideas that will help people really do what they need to do to be a better teacher, to be a more compassionate teacher, a kind teacher, a teacher who is healthy, who's whole. Because I think when we do that, when we focus on the teacher in that way, every student will benefit. Mm -hmm. I know that when I read your blog, I come away feeling just a bit calmer. and like, okay, uh -huh. there's, there's real things that can be done, actions to be taken, but it's centered in self-care. And I appreciate that. Oh, thanks for saying that. That makes me feel good. I appreciate you. So you have a new cohort of residents. What does it seem like to you with this new cohort? Are they different from the last cohort? So I don't have residents. Residents are student teachers. We have a new cohort of residency programs, all right? And so that's a school district and a university partnership. Does it seem new? It seems exciting. I mean, a lot of the people who are in the lab this year are coming back from last year you know, because I think they recognize the benefit of having this space where they can connect with peers who are engaging in the same type of work. They can receive some pretty direct and pointed technical assistance, and they're able to share and learn with one another. And so I'm really excited about that. What I think I'm most excited about is the fact that everyone who is joining us is willing to focus on advancing equity in their residency programs. We have a particular focus on recruiting, retaining, and supporting residents of color. 
And I know, like, sometimes people hear that and they're like, well, residents of color aren't the only people who, you know, are teachers. And like, you're quite white, but in California, the majority of teachers are female and Caucasian. And I think our student population is not that, right? And so we need a population of educators that it mirrors our student population because we know that students do better when they have more teachers who look like them, who are more diverse. But at the same time, all the things that we're doing to kind of help ensure that anyone who comes in, especially a resident of color, so that they feel welcomed in the space, so that they feel included, like their voice matters, they're being treated with respect, the working conditions are positive. All of those things are good for everyone. I have to say this, I've always been fascinated by education in the sense that we know that there are things that are happening that aren't necessarily right, right? Take mm-hmm. the achievement gap. We've seen students languishing at the bottom forever, it seems. It's not like it's new. It's not like we don't know it. African-American students, indigenous students, Latinx students. And yet, year after year after year, we don't really intentionally focus on those students. Or when we do, especially if it's African-American, the tendency is to say, well, what about this group? And what about that group? And finally, I guess I just want educators, all of us to get to a place and say, you know what? It's okay to give support to those who need it most, right? Let's use the data. And if this is what the data is saying we need to do, why can't we do that? We do it for everything else. And so wanting to diversify the workforce, intentionally creating spaces so that when a person of color, an African-American, a Latinx teacher comes into the space, that they feel welcomed so that they will thrive and stay in the profession. I think that's exciting, exciting work. And I'm hopeful to see what could happen to have all of these people across California working together in this moment. So we'll see. I so appreciate that. I feel like I just want to jump up out of my chair and cheer. Thank you for saying that. That's wonderful. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Have you signed up for the California STEAM Symposium yet? Mark your calendars for December 11th through 13th and join us for this year's virtual event. Hundreds of peer-led breakouts will highlight strategies and innovations that work for all students in every learning environment. Visit steamcalifornia.org for more info. Welcome back everyone. I'm here with Dr. Jacqueline Olson, also known as Dr. J. And she is the director of the Teacher Residency Lab at the CDE Foundation. And she also recently started a blog titled Compassion-Centered Education. Jacqueline, would you like to read a segment from your blog post? Sure. Thanks, Glennon. I think what I'm going to read for you is a piece that was from our first blog post, and in it I'm acknowledging how I'm feeling right now. I think when we acknowledge our feelings, we can get all of that ickiness out of the way so that we can focus on our work. And so what I said here was, I worry about our country, 
as everyone finally comes to terms with its racist history in real and authentic ways. I fear that the newfound understanding of and compassion for the lived experience of African Americans and other people of color will dissipate. I worry that our country will once again, as Martin Luther King Jr. stated so eloquently in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos Our Community, take a step backward simultaneously with every step forward on the question of racial justice, to be at once attracted to the African-American and repelled by him, to love and to hate him. Wow, Jacqueline, that was such a powerful quote. Thank you for sharing that with us. Why is this particular reading resonating with you even today? Basically, I had been seeing some polls recently, and I'm noticing that support for the Black Lives Matter movement is waning. I think people are kind of growing tired of some of the protesting, right? And when I say people, I'm looking at in the polls, they've done it by different ethnicity and race, so like African American, white, Latinx, and some of the support that we had, that the whole country had when they saw that ridiculously inhumane murder of George Floyd, that has sort of started to wane and dissipate. And it just makes me sad because even though it can be for people exhausting and tiring having to think about it, it's not something that African-American people can not think about. It's a lived experience, a daily lived experience. And so I just think when we're talking about justice, when we're talking about compassion when we're talking about a space that is safe and affirming for everyone it can't be that way if some of the people in that space are still being mistreated blatantly mistreated and everyone else knows that it's not right so that's kind of what's been on my mind thank you so much for sharing i really appreciate your approach to it and one of your blog posts address this concept of the ethics of compassion. Can you elaborate a little bit about what this concept is? I may need to read another quote. So just kind of give everyone some context. In the quote, it says, taking action also requires that we recognize the ethics of compassion, which suggests that privilege carries the responsibility of bringing to fruition the safety and ease of all those who are banished to the shadows of life through poverty and oppression. And where responsibility is our capacity to respond wholeheartedly. So when I think about the ethics of compassion, I'm really thinking about this idea of, if you think of compassion as being able to be present, empathetic to someone's pain, to bear witness to that pain and not run away from it and not pretend like you can't see it. If you can stay in that space, that's great. But compassion requires an additional step, right? This willingness to act, to do something to kind of ease that pain. Even if the person doesn't accept it, you're acting in a compassionate way. You take a step and you try and you have this willingness. And so that quote, I put that in there because when I think about Black Lives Matter, for example, or education, for example, if we know that there are, are people who are suffering or who need additional support, we have to do whatever we can to make it right. At least that's what I believe. Me too. I try every day to do something to be supportive of one another. And I think it's critically important in this time where we're feeling very isolated as people during COVID to reach out and offer support and be present in that support. You're not going to be able to fix 
the problem necessarily, but sometimes it's just being there and listening that really feels amazing to the person you're trying to support. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's interesting. I, I remember I was reading this book by Christina Feldman and it's called Compassion. And in there, there was a story about a woman who was trying to be compassionate with her son who happened to have a drug problem. And she kept trying to help him and trying to support him and everything that she did, he kind of just, he didn't really take it. And so she got frustrated and like, she wanted to stop, right? She wanted to stop helping and supporting. And the question for me was, was that compassion? Yes or no? And in response, the author was like, no, it's not compassion because you have to let go of expectations that anything will happen from what you're doing. That is not why we act. That is not why we do things. And if you think that someone's going to accept your help and do it exactly the way that you want to, then you're not really being compassionate. That's almost like a control. Like I expect you to do X, Y, and Z. So if you can let go of that, if you can let go of all those expectations and thoughts around what should happen after you do something kind or do something like a deed, then, then you're acting in a compassionate way. That's really powerful. Dr. J, you've done a lot of research on compassion fatigue, which is dealing with a lot of challenging situations and its secondary effect on you. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe a couple of quick recommendations on how to mitigate that? Sure. So compassion fatigue is the physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion that comes with working with people who are in constant states of distress or trauma. Typically, you see it in medical professions, like nurses who are always working with a lot of sick people, or therapists who are working with people who are just dealing with so much. Same thing with police officers, right? All these different types of first responders. But I also believe that that is happening in the education field because we know that our students are experiencing an extreme amount of trauma like take right now for example covid right people losing jobs and all of the poverty and all this kind of suffering that they're going through any teacher that i've ever known who's worth their weight in gold which i do believe all teachers are are empathetic and they can feel the pain of their students and in feeling that pain of their students, sometimes the line gets crossed in the sense that that pain becomes their own. So the trauma that the student is experiencing firsthand becomes trauma that that teacher experiences secondhand, right? So that's the secondary trauma. And then over time, if not dealt with, that in combination with burnout can cause some issues. It can cause some concerns mental health concerns, actually. So people might feel more anxious or might experience anxiety. They might go home from work or be at work at home, same time kind of what's happening now, and think too much about what was happening during the day and not be able to turn it off. They might be a little bit more irritable or they might want to pull away from others and not be as social as they've been. And interestingly enough, the recommendation when someone gets like that is to actually not pull away, just try to spend more time and to reach out. But I say this because when someone is in that space and they're feeling that way, then they're going to be pulling away from their students. They won't be as present as they can with their students. They might be more irritable with their students. They might be behaving in ways that aren't necessarily pleasant. They're just stressed. So when I took a look at that and I found in my research that, yes, teachers are experiencing compassion fatigue, I just felt like 
we have to talk about this. We have to put this out there. We have to tell people that this is a possibility. We got to give people a warning or a heads up that this is what this is because one of the things that I found, and maybe you know, you're both educators, sometimes people feel guilty, right? They feel guilty for being so irritable or not really wanting to be around their students or even their family. I actually have one of my teachers that I talked to in my research tell me a story where they saw one of their students with her parents in public and she hid in the bushes. She didn't want to deal with them. She didn't want to see them. And it just was heartbreaking for me. And I always get teary-eyed when I think about this, but when you become a teacher, I think most people feel like they have this calling and they want to be supportive. And so how do we ensure that that dream of becoming a teacher doesn't turn into a nightmare? So in terms of support with compassion fatigue, I think the first one is awareness is half the battle, right? So let's do a little bit of training, you know, training up capacity building and letting people know what this is and how it might manifest in their lives and what that particularly can look like just knowing about that actually gives people that aha moment. Oh, that's why I'm feeling this way. There's a name for it. Ah, and then they tend to start to feel better. Something else that I think would be helpful is mental health first aid training. And the reason why I say that is for two reasons. One, they can support any students who might be experiencing trauma and recognize those signs, but they might also be able to recognize those signs within themselves. And then I would say practice self-care. I know we all heard that like a million times before, but the reason why you've heard it a million times before is because it works. Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, California Surgeon General, she talks about saying that sleep, uh, focusing on your mental health, healthy relationships, exercise, nutrition, and mindfulness are critical for healing, right? Especially when you're combating toxic stress. And in my opinion here, compassion fatigue is like that. So those are things that you could do. And then I would say meditation. Meditation helps. And we already know that it reduces stress. So why not try these things? And I just have to throw this out there. I remember I had a friend who was a, an administrator. He was a teacher first and then an administrator. And he was skipping lunch every day. He was so busy. And he had lost a lot of weight. And he told me the story that someone asked him, why aren't you eating lunch? I'm so busy. He said, I just got a lot going on. And then they said, oh, so you're not a priority? You're deprioritizing yourself? And I think that that was sort of like a slap in the face to him. It felt like, huh, I didn't really think about it that way, right? I mean, think about this. If you know someone else is stressed out or not feeling great or whatever, you're going to tell them to do some things to take care of themselves. So why can't you take your own advice? And in my blog, I wrote this particular line, and I actually want to read this now here. That would be great. And basically what I said is the other thing that you can do is to practice self-compassion. Love yourself. Be kind to yourself. Extend the grace you would afford anyone else going through tremendous turmoil to yourself. You're worth it. You matter today, tomorrow, and always. Such powerful words, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for sharing both about compassion fatigue and some ways to take care of yourself. All of this can be found in Jacqueline's blog. Jacqueline has also done an amazing TEDx talk, and we'll be sure to link to that as part of our description as well. To close out, we have a few questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And our first question is, what are your hopes for students? 
What are my hopes for students? I hope that every student receives the best education possible so that they can grow up and manifest their dreams. Where do you go to for inspiration? The Bible, actually. And then I, I read a lot of books on healing, prayer. My mom. <laughs> Family's so powerful. I go to my mom quite regularly. What is the one thing you want our audience to take away from today's conversation? I would say be kind to yourself. Practice self-care. Prioritize yourself. And then if you are willing and able, take action to make life better for those who need it. Jacqueline, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to get to connect with you today on Lunch Bites, and we look forward to continuing to collaborate with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you both. Remember to join us for the Virtual California STEAM Symposium, December 11th through 13th. Visit steamcalifornia.org for more info. Lunch Bites is produced by the Californians Dedicated to Education Foundation. Our executive producer is Allison Peter. Our editor is Darina K. Guerrero. All of the recordings and resources mentioned during today's discussion can be found on steamcalifornia.org.